So I'd like to start off by telling you a story. This is a Sunday of stories. Once upon a time, there lived a wolf who absolutely loved his garden. He worked all day long, every single day, to plant and tend the beautiful flowers around his house. The only problem was those three little pigs that lived nearby. They were terrible neighbors, and when they got hungry and the wolf was out doing other things, they would come and eat the flower out of his garden. The wolf tried everything he could think of to keep them away. He built a taller fence. When that didn't work, he lined the fence with barbed wire, thinking that would keep the pigs out. Finally, he had had enough. He just couldn't take it anymore. So he went and he blew the houses down that two of the pigs had built, one made of straw and one made of sticks. Unfortunately, the third pig had built his house out of bricks, so the wolf couldn't blow that one down. And the pigs never did stop eating his flowers. The end. Picking up what I'm putting down here. So how many of you recognize that story? Any hands? Right? Okay. It was the story of the three little pigs, right? I mean, sort of. What was different? Yes, this time, the pigs were not the main characters. The wolf was. It can be strange to hear a story that we all know really well told completely differently, with a different character at the center of the story. We may even notice ourselves getting annoyed hearing the story told so differently from the way we were taught it told the right way. But who gets to decide the right way to tell a story? Whose experience matters? It's often said that history is written by the winners. When we learn about the American Revolution in school, we learn about it from the viewpoint of the colonists who wanted to be free of British control. But what about the Native Americans? What did they think of all this? And what about the Africans who'd been brought to the colonies against their wills? How would they tell the story of how the colonies became the United States? Would they think of it as a good story? A story to be proud of? These sorts of questions help us understand the point of Black History Month, I think. This month, and months like Women's History Month, and LGBTQ Pride Month, and all of the others, offer us a chance to think about history from a different point of view than it's usually told to us. It offers us a chance to remove the folks usually considered the winners from the center of the story and to place different characters and experiences in that center. Black History Month encourages us to consider how our history might just have a completely different moral or lesson or point if Harriet Tubman or Eugene Bullard or Faith Ringgold were the main characters, instead of people like George Washington, Robert E. Lee, or Susan B. Anthony. 
A few months ago, I came across the piece of art now on the screen. It's a painting by Titus Kaffar, winner of a MacArthur Foundation's Genius Grant in 2018. Kaffar took a painting that used to hang on the wall of Yale's Corporation Room, a painting that featured LEU Yale with two other rich white men with an enslaved black child in the background. This painting is remarkable because he took the original and flipped its focus around. Now, the enslaved boy is in the center of the frame. The painting is titled, Enough About You. I wonder how much we could learn by placing different people in the, inside the picture frames of history's most famous works of art. I wonder what those different stories, those different viewpoints, might teach us about our past, about our present, about ourselves. This practice of decentering the usual heroes in a story and replacing them with the poor, the slave, the oppressed, this is an old tradition, one with roots in the Jewish and Christian scriptures, among other traditions. The Bible is full of stories where God chooses people with little or no power in their societies to accomplish amazing things. And I imagine that's why so many of these stories have become central in this country's African-American churches. After all, it was Moses, the son of Hebrew slaves who delivered his people out of bondage. It was Jewish daughter Esther who risked her life to save the Jewish people from annihilation. It was Jesus whose parents had to flee across a border to protect their son from the emperor's wrath who offered healing and good news to his oppressed people. God uses kings to do good things sometimes, too, but the stories about them always seem to reveal just how imperfect they are, how in need of forgiveness and mercy they were, just like everybody else. In the last century, a few Catholic theologians started calling this theme throughout the Bible God's preferential option for the poor, which really just means that in their view, God always sides with the underdog. In other words, God's on the side of the resistance, not the empire, though even Darth Vader isn't so far gone enough to be unredeemable because God never gives up on anyone. For liberation theologians, when God is telling the story, the usual winners aren't the main characters. The poor person is. The slave is. The person whose vote won't be counted because they don't have a P.O. box, because they have a P.O. box, not a physical address. The black teenager heading to the store for candy who gets shot by a white police officer, he's the main character of the story. The child suffering with asthma who lives just down the hill from here, just down the street from the oil refineries in Richmond. He's the main character of God's story. The black mother whose pain is ignored by doctors and who dies in childbirth. She's the main character of God's story. Ellie Wiesel, 
a Jew who survived concentration camps and went on to work for human rights around the world, has said, wherever people are persecuted because of their race, religion, or political views, that place must, at that moment, become the center of the universe. So, perhaps our lesson as students of black history is to make those who suffered because of their race the center of the stories that we tell about this nation. Perhaps our work as people of faith is to make those who are suffering right now the center of the story we tell about Kensington and El Cerrito and Berkeley and San Francisco. As poet Jan Richardson writes, I live constantly with the awareness that there are no maps for what I'm doing, that I'm making the path as I go. Yet, even as I move across what seems like uncharted territory, there is a way that lies beneath the way that I'm going. We are all creating the road as we go, yet beneath this, undergirding this, is a path carved by those who have traveled here before us. This is what our religious stories and traditions offer us. We may not believe everything our ancestors did. We may not sing the words to old hymns believing the things about that that our ancestors did. But we can learn from their hard-won wisdom about how to keep on keeping on when life gets hard. In a similar way, Black History Month offers us opportunity to mine the stories of the past for guidance on how to tackle today's challenges. All of us here today are, in one sense, sharing the same experience in worship. Yet, all of us will have a unique experience of this service today. Different things will stand out to each of us. Different things will inspire us, maybe annoy us, maybe challenge us. The Spirit will move in each of us in its own way. And each person's perspective, each person's struggle, each person's experience of blessing and transformation matters. May we all know the blessing of hearing old stories told with new main characters, seeing old paintings with new people in the frames, understanding ancient history from the viewpoint of those whom the winners would have us ignore. May we cherish the questions these blessings raise in our hearts and our minds. And as we seek to answer those questions in new ways, May we be the blessing we wish to see in this broken yet beautiful. Amen.